0: I'm going to read you the 72nd Psalm. This is a Psalm of Solomon. He did one or two Psalms and uh, beautiful words from Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the top of the mountains its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things and blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Okay, today we're getting into uh, Genesis 47, the 7th through the 12th verse. It's just a few verses today, and uh, if you've never been here before, you may be a little lost. I try to say this. You really need to come to about two or three or maybe even four sermons to really start to see the pictures that are going on through the lives of Jacob and Joseph. It's been a panorama of redemptive history and we're getting into the point right now in Jacob and Joseph's life because they've been reunited where it is picturing the coming tribulation period in the book of Revelation. Every picture has been so exact. Every picture has shown us exactly what God is going to do in human history by using real events of real people's lives that happened thousands of years ago to show us what will be repeated it's astonishing and it's great but if you're a little confused just understand that it's simply because this is a part of a greater whole which is going on in the picture of this leading to the tribulation period so what i want to do is i want to go ahead and read you our text first uh genesis 47 starting in the seventh verse then joseph brought in his father jacob and set him before pharaoh and jacob blessed pharaoh pharaoh said to jacob how old are you And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are one hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Joseph blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brother, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. Jacob's going to come before Pharaoh in today's verses, and there's going to be this tender exchange between the two, which we just saw. After that, we'll see Joseph's planned care for Israel during their time in Egypt. These things, though brought about by Joseph, were actually planned by God. Every detail that has happened in the lives of these people has been orchestrated to demonstrate his providential hand and care over the ages, over the elements, and over even the choices that the people have made. As R.C. Sproul says, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. Every atom that flies about is known to God. Every drop of water serves his purposes, and the vast distances between the extremities of the universe are traversed by him at all times and eternally. Let's keep this in mind as we look at what otherwise seems the futility of life to those around us. The lies of evolution, for example, or maybe global warming show the world a God who is lacking control. He's ineffective in his capabilities and he's unable to keep his promises. This is not the God of the Bible. Our God is great in all ways. He is perfect in his very being and he holds absolute sway over the minutest details of our lives. We are, in fact, in good hands. Our text verse for today comes from Job chapter 14. Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. It's true. Our days are few and they are filled with trouble. But there is purpose and there is a reason behind all of it. Though we are like the flower that is beautiful one day and it's gone the next, Because of Jesus Christ, we have a hope which springs eternal. The radiance of what will be is worth the wait. It is worth the grief, and it is worth the anguish that we often suffer. Hold fast to this truth. It is the constant theme of God's superior word. And so let's turn to that wonderful book again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. As usual, I have three thoughts for you. The first today is the days of the years of my pilgrimage. This will be verses 7 through 10. Verse 7 says, Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. Well, in our last sermon, we saw the cares taken for Jacob and the family of Israel as they came down and settled in Egypt. We also were shown that only five of the brothers had been brought before Pharaoh. The Hebrew used to describe them and who they were was very unusual. This unusual wording was used because it was speaking of those who would survive through the time of the tribulation. It would be those who are left alive by grace and who will be brought into the presence of God's great house, represented by Pharaoh. This verse about Jacob seems to confirm that. Jacob, during all of these Joseph sermons, has pictured the collective body of Israel from all of the ages. He represents not a tribe but all of the tribes, or the people collectively from those tribes. After the five brothers are brought before Pharaoh, Jacob is brought in, and it pictures Israel in the presence of their God. Verse 7 continues, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now to bless another carries different connotations in the Bible. We can bless someone by giving a simple greeting like the Lord bless you. It's a very nice way of hailing one another, which we more and more fail to do in our society today. It goes all the way back to the high priestly blessing in the book of Numbers, chapter six. It's first used by people in the Bible in the book of Ruth. You read that account, it says, the Lord bless you and the Lord be with you. It's a very nice little account of them. And so this is what I try to do as well when I greet people. Rather than saying, God bless you, because God is general. And there's a lot of people that believe in a lot of different gods out there. But if you say the Lord bless you, people pretty much know that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. So if I'm at the store and I you know, get my stuff done in front of the cashier, I'll usually walk out saying, Lord bless you. Or as I'm taking out the garbage at the mall and somebody's sitting there drinking a Slurpee or something, or having a conversation. When I get done, I always say, Lord bless you. And I want them to know that I am a believer in the Lord. Now, I wish everyone would still use this type of speech, but it is very quickly fading away. Another way that one can bless in the Bible is from a position of superiority to somebody who is of a lesser position. In Genesis chapter 14, a man named Melchizedek pronounced a blessing upon Abraham. And when he did this, he said these words, Blessed be Avram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. In an analysis of that very blessing, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament says, Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. In this, we found that Melchizedek is actually deemed to be greater than Abraham, even though Abraham is considered the father of all of the faithful. Now, we can also bless the Lord, such as happens many, many times in the Bible, where people say something like, bless the Lord, O my soul, or something like that. This is not saying that we are somehow greater than God. It's a different type of blessing. Rather, it is using the term to bless in a different way, as, for example, a blessing of honor, or of praise. And so we're left with a question here as to what this verse means when it says, Veberech Yaakov et Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It does not give the blessing that he pronounced, and yet it makes the point that he in fact blessed him. So what is this telling us? Who is greater? The answer is that one is greater in reality, and the same is lesser in the other thing that it's picturing. Jacob is the living covenant patriarch. He is the greatest person on earth at this time in history. He's a prophet of the Lord, and he is the one to monitor faithfulness to the family's responsibility to God, such as in the circumcision of their children on the eighth day. He's also the one who is obeyed and respected by those in the covenant line, which they failed to do from time to time, but we've seen time and again that they have been very respectful to their father as well. Joseph may be the second ruler in Egypt, but he is subordinate to his greater father, Jacob, in person. Pharaoh is no different. Therefore, Jacob's blessing is from the greater to the lesser. It is a blessing upon Pharaoh, not a hailing of Pharaoh. However, in picture, the exact opposite is true. Veparech ya'akov et Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. In picture, Jacob is corporate Israel, and they're brought into the presence of God. And they shall bless God, as we see in the Psalms. From a portion of the 68th Psalm, we read these words. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company the princes of Zebulun, and the princes of Naphtali. This complex concept of blessing shows us why Jacob's blessing of Pharaoh isn't actually recorded in the Bible. It's because in reality, it is one type of blessing, but in picture, it is another. And this is certain because if it was one type of blessing or the other, such as Melchizedek's blessing upon Abraham, it would have been recorded, but it wasn't. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel, Bless him all you Christian denominations and of his mighty works to all the world do tell. Bless the Lord with a great resounding voice. Bless the Lord, yes, O my soul. Bless the Lord, you peoples, and rejoice and all his mighty works shall we extol. Verse eight, Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? Now this probably seems like a bizarre question to put forth as the very first question that you would ever ask of a person, especially coming from the ruler of all of Egypt, Pharaoh himself. You might expect something like so how was your trip down here right or i hope the uh, royal carts weren't too bumpy on the highway or something you know maybe you'd think he'd ask about joseph what about that son of yours huh the rural uh, the ruler of the entire world pretty nifty huh i mean anything but how old are you but considering the circumstances it was probably the first thing that jumped into his mind Joseph is his right-hand man, and he is only 39 years old. He would have been shaven as an Egyptian, meaning no beard, no hair on his head. He'd look youthful, and he's close to the prime of his life. The obvious difference in appearance between the two, especially because of the great age difference between them, must have been shocking. Jacob would have had a gray head. He would have had a long gray beard. And both of these would not be seen in the normal circles of Egypt. He would have been calloused in his hands and his feet. He would have been wrinkled in the face. He would have been bent over in the back. And for all we know, this is Charlie Garrett speculating here, he could have been wearing a favorite garment made by his beloved Rachel, who had died some 30 years earlier. The question was not, how old are you, in a flat tone. It was probably, how old are you? Each word was uttered in astonished awe. And to show that this is certainly how Pharaoh said it, we can look at Jacob's response, which is verse 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. In his response to Pharaoh, he begins with the words of faith, the days of the years of my pilgrimage. The word we use for pilgrim comes from a French word, which is pelegrin. all right? And that is a corruption of an earlier Latin word, which is peregrinus. This implies a stranger or a foreigner and is based on the adverb peregre, which means not at home. A pilgrim throughout the ages is a person that goes on a journey of some sort. And quite often it's for a religious reason. As they aren't home, they can expect hardship and they can expect privation. And this pretty much sums up the life of Jacob, both in his worldly walk and in his spiritual walk. And this is one attribute which the people of God are especially noted for. In the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which is the great hall of fame of the Bible, speaking of Abel Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, it says these words, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Like those who went before him in faith, Jacob also confesses that he is only on a pilgrimage. This life is not his ultimate destination, but it's a walk towards something greater. So saying this to Pharaoh would be more relevant because this is what the Pharaohs believed of themselves. They thought they were set for an eternal life with all of the trimming of bliss, wealth, prosperity, contentment, all of that stuff. For a commoner from another country to claim that they had another, a greater inheritance would probably have been received with very unusual surprise. In our world today, it is no different. Christians love to say the words, this ain't my home. If you ask most people, though, if they believe in heaven, they'll say, yeah, I believe in heaven. But they normally don't live that way. Instead, life is filled with self-gratification and a hunger to complete these bucket lists and to make as much as possible before they end up dying. Unfortunately, too many Christians act in the same way. Instead of the faithful response of Jacob, we see the lusting actions maybe of David and Bathsheba or the greedy actions of those who sold in the temple at Jesus' time which is something we see in churches all over the world today. In the book of Acts, we have these people, Ananias and Sapphira. They're a perfect example of faithless Christians who put notoriety and profit above devotion to God. But if we can really hold fast to the promises of eternal life because of Jesus, then those material blessings will find their proper perspective in this life all we have everything that we have is a blessing and it has been given by our gracious God to us but it should not be the consuming desire and drive of our lives finally in finishing this thought to Pharaoh Jacob's words to him say that the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years Jacob was born in the year two thousand one hundred and sixty-nine from the creation of the world He now stands before Pharaoh at the age of 130 years, and so it is the year 2,299 from the creation. From this statement right here, many important connections can be made to dating elsewhere in the Bible. And this is just a wonderful thing because then we can tell what time we are in human history, for example, because of these little clues that God gives us. God records these things so that we can take the time and navigate through the dating of the Bible and we can determine right where we are in human history. Joseph, his son, is now 39 years old, and so he was born when Jacob was, get this, 91 years old. No wonder Pharaoh was so astonished. Joseph is fully grown with his own family, and yet Jacob, his father, his father is 91 years older than he is. And one more point about what is said here is that both the question by Pharaoh and in the Answer by Jacob, the term Yeme Sheme, the days of the years, is used. It is the Bible's way of reminding all of us, each one of us, that we do not live by years until the years are complete. We live by days and moments. There is no control over time and circumstance by us. No matter what we may think, we have no control over it. In the end, every day is a gift, and each moment is all that we have. The Bible asks us. To consider this and to take it to heart this is the reason why the bible tells us to pay attention to the days in the 90th psalm which is written by moses it's the oldest psalm in the bible he says these words so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom when we look to the years that we have lived or those that we anticipate that we will live we get our vision out of focus and we get our thoughts out of perspective When we count our days instead of our years, we see that they are actually few, although greater in number. James, like Moses, asks us to take to heart the fragility of life. In his little book, which is the 59th book of the Bible, way back towards the end, he says these words in chapter four. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Verse nine continues. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Few were his days in relation to two things. The first is in how long his forefathers had lived, but more so in relation to how long he actually expected to live because of the promise that was made to him and to his people in them there is the hope of the redeemer who would transform them from death to life even eternal life in comparison to this his days were truly few and they were evil he says the days of the years of his life have been evil many of his troubles were self-inflicted but the troubles really existed nonetheless in his 130 years he had fled from his brother esau who had threatened to kill him He'd serve seven years for a wife that he didn't want and then he had to serve seven more for the one he did want. He suffered through many hardships as he served those 14 years and afterwards as well when he went to raise his own family in flocks. He had many, many trials and pains during that time. He feared for his life again as he fled back to Canaan from his father-in-law and he feared for it when he returned to face his brother Esau once again. Later in Canaan, his precious daughter Dinah was violated by a son of a king And two of his sons killed an entire town in response, something which made him only more fearful. As he traveled south, his beloved wife, Rachel, died in giving birth. And then just after that, his oldest son, Reuben, slept with another one of his wives. But of all of the difficulties and of all of the trials, probably the worst followed just a little while later when he was told that his favorite son, Joseph, was surely dead. The days of Jacob's life were evil, at least to him. But not everything that is evil from one perspective is evil from another. All of the events which tired him out, wore him down, and which gave him grief were used by God in several different ways. In one way, they have all been used to picture both the coming Messiah in person and in work, and also the corporate body of Israel in the future. And in another, they were all used by God to bring him and his covenant line to the place where he now stood in front of Pharaoh, safe, secure, and well taken care of during this famine. Every single event was used as a stepping stone toward a greater good. Looking at the pilgrimage of Jacob and how God used it for that greater good, of him and others, we can put our own lives into the proper perspective. Here's what the 119th psalm says about this Your statutes have been my songs. In the house of my pilgrimage, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine because I kept your precepts. This is what Jacob often failed to do. Instead of remembering the Lord in his pilgrimage, he wallowed in his own woe and misery. This man, Jacob, had personal visits from the Lord along with other dreams and visions throughout his life. And yet it took most of his life to come to the point where he was able to look past himself and to look at the greater good that God was using both him and his trials for. Now, like the promise of eternal days, instead of the few that he had thus far lived, he finally had a grasp of the goodness of the days ahead in comparison to the evil ones that he had already experienced. He now realized that every aspect of life, good and evil, was intended for good. And this good is in connection with the eternal days that are promised through the hope of the Messiah. Not only could he look forward to eternal days, but he could look forward to perfectly good eternal days. And this is our hope of the coming promise as well. This is why we can with surety say that Jesus Christ is my redeemer. That's what, if we really believe what we celebrated last week at Easter, that he came out of the tomb, if we really believe that, then why can't we have faith much, much greater than Jacob? Jacob, We can say that everything is working for good. Everything is working for good in my life to bring me to the place where I will be with him because he's already proven that he's come out of the grave. He's already proven that his promises to me are true. And that's what we need to remember and not be like Jacob that took so many long years to realize this precept in his own life. Verse nine continues. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. Jacob's now 130 years old. He's gonna live to 147 years, but the lives of his fathers were more. Isaac lived to 180 years. Abraham lived to 175 years. And before them, the lives of the fathers were counted in the hundreds, even to Methuselah, who lived to be 969 years old. But much of this was probably already known to Pharaoh at this time in history. Jacob and Pharaoh reached back together to their ancestor Noah, And get this, Noah only died in the year 2006 from the creation. It was only 293 years earlier. Despite being from different sons of Noah, they ultimately shared a common humanity in their father Noah. Verse 10, so Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. The New King James Version says, so Jacob blessed Pharaoh. This implies something like thus. The blessing came during the conversation and the Bible is acknowledging that a blessing was made. Some other versions say, then Jacob blessed Pharaoh. This implies that the blessing referred to at the beginning actually was given after the conversation. One uses the word then and then adds in the word again to indicate two blessings. And still some other versions say, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. This then implies two blessings, one at the beginning and one at the end. What I think is probable is that Jacob blessed Pharaoh twice. Once as he came in and once as he departed. There is a double blessing bestowed upon the great house by the man of God. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. I've walked many miles and was often drowned in my tears. I've been through trials, hardships, toil, and strife, and was at times consumed in overwhelming fears. But now I perceive that all was intended for good. What seemed evil? It really wasn't, I now see. It took me so much of my life, but I finally understood that God has always been there faithfully. Directing me our second thought today a possession in the land of Egypt. This is verse 11 and Joseph situated his father and his brothers If the time in Egypt is a picture of Israel during the tribulation period, which it is Then what we see here is perfectly expected Jesus will provide for Israel during the tribulation It's going to be a time of grace during a time of hardship and this is exactly how it is described for them in the book of Revelation In this, Joseph situates situates his father and his brothers. What is done is for their benefit at his direction. And it is no different in type and in picture than what Jesus is going to do for Israel. Verse 11 continues, and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. There's a place specifically selected for Israel during their time in Egypt. Egypt, if you remember, means double distress. This looks forward to the time of great tribulation in the book of Revelation. Though the time is 215 years for Israel and Egypt, and only three and a half years for them in the future, the concept rings true for both of them. In Daniel 7, in Daniel 12, and in Revelation 12, the term time, times, and half a time is used, indicating three and one half years. Here's what it says in Revelation 12:14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, the woman representing Israel, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. This will be the one halfway point between the seven years of tribulation. And Israel has been brought to Egypt at the one halfway point between the covenant with Abraham and the exodus from Egypt. Both periods are 215 years. This pattern is not to be missed because it points directly to the future events at the end of the age. Verse 11 continues, in the best of the land. Not only is Israel given land in Egypt, it's given the best of the land. The picture is certainly not intended for us to see that Israel is given uh, the best of the land for farming or the best of the land for mining or maybe for water skiing. That's not what we're seeing here. Instead, it is saying that where they flee to will be the best possible land for their security and for their safety. They will have what is needed in order to sustain them until the Lord finally delivers them. Verse 11 goes on. In the land of Ramses. I want you to know, we've been talking about Goshen for the past, I don't know how many sermons. They keep saying they're going to Goshen, they're going to Goshen, they're being put in Goshen. And all of a sudden, it says Ramses. This is the very first of five times that the name Ramses is used in the Bible. The debate about where this is or what is intended by this term is immense. One scholar devoted pages and pages of possibilities as to these things. But the where and the what are far less relevant than the why. It's the name that God is asking us to focus on. It was Goshen, 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 meaning drawing near. The tribulation is drawing near. And all of a sudden he changes it to Ramses. It means son of the son or child of the son. Son, that's why I say child. In Psalm 84, God is represented by the son. Listen to this. For the Lord God is a son, S-U-N, and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In Malachi chapter 4, Jesus is called the son, S-U-N, of righteousness. And that passage is one that appears to telescope between his first and his second advent. Listen to how these verses seem to mirror Joseph's care for his own family and the Lord's care for Israel of the future. Here's what it says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. Man, think of what's coming here. Says the Lord of hosts, that they will leave them neither root nor branch, but to you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you shall go out like and grow like uh, stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Ramses, rather than the name Goshen is used here because it is speaking not so much of the tribulation period, but the actual state of those god will care for during the tribulation period israel is the son of the son jesus as evidence of this israel is elsewhere called the lord's firstborn son and they were called this guess when when moses picturing christ the redeemer is told to speak to pharaoh the afflictor of israel what is being seen here is perfectly detailed not just of actual events of the past but of actual events of israel's future and I got to tell you what, not too distant from us now. I'm certain of it. This is what it says in Exodus chapter four, Moses speaking to Pharaoh, or God speaking to Moses who is to speak to Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The name Ramses is used here to show that Israel is the son of the son, exactly as the Bible has described both of them. Israel, the S-O-N, of Jesus, the S-U-N. These things that seem unusual are always, always given to help us weave together the patterns of redemptive history. Verse 11 continues, as Pharaoh had commanded. Now we've logically divided this verse into five individual thoughts. It is as if we were asked to stop and evaluate each one of them individually. And so that's what we've done. Each has shown us wonderful things, which God has done, which God will do. This final portion of verse 11 shows us that what was done by Joseph is at the direction of Pharaoh, the great house. And it shows us that the actions of Jesus are all done at the direction of God in heaven. The two are working harmoniously in redemptive history for the sake of fulfilling the ancient covenant of God. In the time ahead, Pharaoh is going to take on a different symbolism. Instead of being the once great protector of Israel, he's going to work against them. And we're going to have to be very careful not to miss that transition when it occurs. A possession in the land while the famine rages. Care for the people of God at the hand of Jesus. These beautiful things are seen so clearly in the Bible's pages. The marvelous things God has done for all of us. He gives us the best of all things as he watches over us. His attention never slacks as he keeps us from safe from harm. And he does these things through his son, our Lord Jesus He is fully capable to keep us by the power of his mighty arm. Our third, our final thought today, bread to sustain. This is verse 12. It says, then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. Without being Jacob's favorite son, the brothers would have never been jealous of him. Without their jealousy, his dreams would never have enraged them. Without their hatred, they would have never thrown him into a pit, nor would they have sold him off to the Gentiles. Without being sold off to the Gentiles, he would never have ended up in Potiphar's house. If he weren't there, then he would never have been thrown into the royal prison. If he was never in the royal prison, he would never have heard the dreams of Pharaoh's officials. And if he never heard those dreams, he couldn't have given them their interpretation. And without their interpretation, he would never have been brought before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. And God gave Pharaoh those dreams which were otherwise not able to be interpreted. Without his interpretations, he would never have been exalted to the ruler of Egypt. And if this were the case, then Egypt would have suffered and perished in the famine. Without the famine, there would have been no need for Israel to go down and get grain from Egypt. Or if there was a famine and Egypt had no grain, Israel would have perished. Without coming to Egypt, Israel would never have been reconciled to Joseph, and without that, they would have never been brought to this place of safety. If you were to substitute the name Joseph for Jesus and say the exact same thing again that I just said, you'd see that all of human history has had an exacting purpose, and it is all leading to the end times, and it is all, all about Jesus and Israel. The church is an insert And that goes back to chapter 38 with the the story of Judah and Tamar. We're just an insert in what God is doing in human history. But thank God that we got that chance. Had the Jews not crucified Christ and sent him to the tomb, we wouldn't have had this chance. But if they had accepted him after the resurrection, we still wouldn't have had this chance. The kingdom age would have come in and there would have been no church age, but they didn't accept him. And we were given God's grace during this time. Joseph married a Gentile bride and we are Christ's Gentile bride. But despite this, there is still a future for Israel. God is good and he is good all the time. Israel will be brought out of Egypt by God's mighty power during the Exodus and Israel will be sustained through the tribulation by a great and a mighty work of God as well. Nothing, nothing is left to chance nothing is haphazard and there is no error and there is no confusion in God's superior word. There is only harmony, wisdom, love, and a marvelous display of God's glory. If we just look close enough, it is right there for us to see. So let's keep our eyes open as we go through life. Let's look at the difficulties, the trials, and the many terrible things that arise as a part of God's greater plan for each one of us. Yes, Jacob had personally talked to the Lord and yet his faith floundered and it floundered often. But we have something more than Jacob did. We have Jesus. We have the Bible and we have the past 6,000 years chock full of fulfilled prophecy to validate both. So let's not let our faith flounder, but let's continually be built up in our walk with the Lord. And if there is someone here, as I ask each week, who has never taken the time to place his faith in Jesus, this great God who has shown us all of human history, let's get that straightened today. Please give me just another minute to tell you how you can do this and how you can have the absolute assurance of eternal life, abundant life, because of Jesus Christ. There's a problem in our life before we come to Christ, and that problem is called sin. And that is what separates us from God because he is infinite in all of his being. He's infinitely holy, and if we've sinned, we cannot be a part of what he's doing any longer. He's infinitely righteous, and so he must judge our sin. He's infinitely just, and so it must be a fair judgment upon us. Sin is what separates us. All have sinned, the Bible says, and all fall short of this glorious God. Every one of us, and the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sinned, and sin is in our life. But Jesus Christ came to take away our sin debt. He gave his life in exchange for our sin. The Bible says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we call on Jesus, if we will simply acknowledge our shortcoming before him, give up on ourselves, and just call on him, then he will make all things right. I was talking with a friend last night and he says he's got a friend that seems to be scared to call on Jesus. He's a good moral person, but he seems like if I call on Jesus, I'm going to have to give something up. He's in bondage because of this. He doesn't realize it. Calling on Jesus is the most freeing thing that can ever happen in a human life. And I can tell you, a person that knows that personally, is me. Because I thought I've got to give up on all this stuff. And I found out that it was just stuff that bound me. And when I called on Christ, it was the most freeing experience I'd ever gone through. My sin went to him. And now I can live for him. And I can have that restored relationship with God that I could never have before. This is the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So please call on him. And all you need to do, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Jesus, I just want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my savior. I want you to free me from the bonds of, of the sin that I'm in. And he will. Okay, do that. Our closing verse today comes from Proverbs chapter 16. It's the ninth verse. A man's heart plans his way but the lord directs his steps sounds just like what we've seen all the way through here every step every step has been directed by the lord next week we're going to see genesis 47 verses 13 through 26 what will a man give in exchange for his soul that'll be our 118th genesis sermon as i say each week before uh, we read our poem and a couple people here they've never been here before I do a poem every single week based on what we talked about so that we almost have a whole poem of the book of Genesis done now. We're just maybe 10 more sermons away from having the whole book of Genesis in a poem form. But before I give you that poem, I want to tell you that the Lord has you exactly, exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you, all right? Our poem today is called, And Jacob, Blessed Pharaoh then joseph brought in jacob his father and before pharaoh him he set, and jacob blessed pharaoh not another but pharaoh was not done yet pharaoh said to jacob how old are you and jacob said to pharaoh my years have been evil and few the days of the years of my pilgrimage full of strife are 130 years few and evil have been the days of the years of my life i've lived through many trials and tears and they have not attained to the days of the years of the lives of my father span in the days of their pilgrimage, since the Lord created man. So Jacob, Pharaoh, he blessed and went out from before Pharaoh after Pharaoh had been addressed. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in Egypt, the land in the best of the land suitable to their druthers in the land of Ramses, just as God had planned. It is as Pharaoh had commanded and truly God never left Israel stranded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all to be fed. All of his father's household, he provided them with bread. According to their family's number, nothing for them did he encumber. This is how God cares for his children, for those who live by faith and not by sight. God looks down upon the sons of men, and those who live this way are his delight. God chose Israel for his own people, and he chose us in the church as well. So let us proclaim his glory from every church people. Let us this wondrous saving message tell. Jesus, beautiful Jesus, our Lord and our King. To him, all honor and all our praise belong. Let us forever to him our voices sing. At all times, let us glorify him in song. Hail the Lord who does marvelous things for us. Hail the splendor and glorious name of our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, what a marvelous tapestry beauty you have shown us in this word and you continue to show us i'm so excited about the coming sermons and what what you're going to reveal to us as these continue on to the book of exodus and the bringing out of your people from that terrible time that they faced and how it so closely and beautifully matches what you're going to do for them again you have always been faithful to them you always will be faithful to them even though they're unfaithful to you just as each one of us is we all have this thing in our life that just makes us want to rebel And thank God that you forgive us time and time again. What a wondrous God you are. Lord, the people that are here that have to travel in the week ahead or even today, please take care of them as they travel. There are needs in hearts, there are needs in in our our souls that need to be met. And uh, I would ask that you would search each one of us out, find those things and uh, just provide them. And then give us the wisdom, give us the wisdom to remember to thank you and to give you praise for those things every good and perfect blessing and gift comes down from you. And so we need to remember that, to just honor you with our lives and with our praises on our lips. Thank you, Lord, for these things. We love you. We do praise you. And we do so in the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. From the uh, book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we've received the instructions for the Lord's Supper. And, uh, They come from the hand of Paul. You certainly know that he got this from the mouth of the Lord and also from his friend Luke because it so closely matches what it says in the book of Luke about these things. But uh, uh, here's what he wrote. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he would have given thanks over this bread. He would have said this particular blessing Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Hamotzi Min Haaretz and he broke it and he said take and eat this is my body which is broken for you do this and remember of me." in the same manner he took the cup after supper and he would have blessed us as well he would have said these words Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melecha Olam Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty, drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. I'll tell you what, before you come forward, let's say a a quick prayer to the Lord, a silent prayer. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Happy birthday. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come today. We want to praise you for your greatness, praise you for your glory, and we anticipate wonderful things in the week ahead. No matter what they be, good or bad, we will accept them, because we know that they're a part of what you are doing in our lives to usher you into your glorious presence. Thank you for this. Praise you for this. All hail the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.